Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Good morning, Harvest. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, that's on page 1021 if you're grabbing the Bible in the seat in front of you. And while you do that, if you wouldn't mind passing the register on the left side of each row, let us know that you're here this morning. We would greatly appreciate that. Well, last Sunday, last Sunday we began a new series in the book of 1 John called That You May Know. Uh, This whole series is built on the idea that walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus is not an I think so kind of faith. It's not an I really, really hope so kind of faith, but it's an I know so kind of faith. Last week we saw in 1 John that God has made eternal life available. God Almighty has given eternal life, and eternal life we saw in the scriptures was more than just life with unending duration, but eternal life is knowing Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus for ages and ages without end. We saw that the only way to have eternal life is to have the Son, and what does it mean to have the Son? It means to turn from your sins and to embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ to turn alone to him and trust in Jesus only for the salvation of your soul. If you have the son, you indeed have life. And John has written these things in 1 John and the Holy Spirit of God has inspired these words in the text so that you, child of God, might know that you have eternal life. God wants his children to have a settled certainty in their souls, in their position, in being his children, because when that happens, God lets us know very, very clearly that he loves us. We said last week that when we love someone, we want them to know that we love them. We don't want them to be wondering or thinking or really hoping that we love them, but we want them to know that we love them, because when we know that we are loved by God, It enables us to love him in return. So we said last week that being confident in our salvation is neither arrogant nor presumptuous, but it's actually biblical. So that we as God's children can say like 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Well, as we concluded our time last week, we noted two questions that we're going to be handling for the rest of our series, two different questions. Uh, The first one is, how do I know that relationship with God is possible? How do I know that relationship with God is possible? And then the next three weeks are, how do I know if I actually have a relationship with God? This morning, we take on that first question, how do I know it's even possible to have relationship with God Almighty? 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 2. God's word says this, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is who he says he is and he did what the Bible says he did and he's going to do what the scriptures proclaim he's going to do, then everything changes. Christianity either succeeds or fails on whether or not Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, actually entered into time and space. And so, as John begins his letter here, which again, he's writing for the purpose of encouraging believers to know that they have eternal life, he begins by laying out four essential truths about Jesus. John begins his letter by laying out four essential truths concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then from those four truths, we can see three glorious implications. So what are these four truths that we see here in this first chapter and first two verses of the second? Truth number one, Jesus is fully God. That's a good time for God's people to say amen. Jesus is fully God. God. Uh, the first six words penned by John begin to develop the concept, the truth, the doctrine of Jesus' full divinity. He begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. And then the last four words of this verse say, uh, concerning the word of life. You look at verse two, and it says that the word of life was with the Father. Remember last week we said that John who wrote 1 John is the same John who wrote the gospel according to John. And so this passage is actually pointing us back to remember what John had written previously in the gospel of John. In John 1, 1 through 2, it's here on the screens. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He 
was in the beginning with God. So see all the connections here between these two passages. We have in the beginning. We have the word, the word being with God. What's the point that John is trying to make by beginning his uh, epistle here, this first letter, in such an odd way by saying that which was from the beginning? He's trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God. He is eternal and unchangeable in his power and perfection and in his goodness and in his glory. Later in 1 John 5.20, John will say explicitly, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He wants his readers to make no mistake about it that Jesus is God. Uh, in the first century when John was writing this, there was a man named Serenthus. Uh, Serenthus was going about proclaiming that Jesus was not fully God. In fact, what he was saying is that Jesus was just like any one of us. He was born of Mary and Joseph in a natural way. And then what he said is, but the Christ, the anointing of God, actually came upon Jesus at his baptism. And then the Christ, the anointing of God, departed from Jesus prior to his crucifixion on the cross. Now, this heresy, these non-truths, are not just a first-century heresy that was embraced centuries ago. It may not be called Serinthianism now, and it may not have all the exact same nuances as it did then, but the denial of the full divinity of Jesus Christ still very much exists. Those who would claim that Jesus was just a good man, or that Jesus was just a good teacher who went about doing good things, they deny the godness of Jesus. John begins his letter to encourage us in our eternal life and standing as God's children by declaring that Jesus is the word of life who is from the beginning and is God. There never was a time when the son was not and there will never be a time when the son is not. Jesus claimed I and the father are one and he who has seen me has seen the Father. Truth number one, Jesus is fully God. Second truth, Jesus became fully man. Jesus became fully man. Look at verses one and two again. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it, and we proclaim it to you. John is saying, uh, we've seen him. We touched him. We did life with him. Remember, this is John. This is John who spent three years with Jesus, walking with him, living with him. This is John who laid his head back against Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. This is John who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus Christ was crucified. This is John whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary into his hands when he departed to be with the Father. This is John who stood at the empty tomb and saw that the Christ was no longer there. This was John who ate breakfast with the resurrected Jesus Christ. So what John is saying here is make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ became fully man. He was fully God and became fully man and I saw him and I touched him 
And I watched him eat and drink and I laughed with him and I cried with him and I saw him grow tired and I lived with him. I was an eyewitness to this Jesus. Verse two says that the word of life was made manifest to us. He's speaking of the incarnation when God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. And again, it's pointing back to John chapter one, verse one, and then verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in understanding that Jesus is fully God and became fully man, it's been said like this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining fully God, he became fully man. You see, there was another heresy that was operative in the first century that John is wanting to make sure that his readers do not fall into. Uh, it was the heresy of docetism. This heresy claimed that Jesus was not really human, but he only appeared to be human. He was more of a spirit or a phantom-like figure. But later in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, you can look at it or listen. It says this. John says, by this you may know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Believing that Jesus actually came in the flesh, that he became fully human, is essential to the Christian faith. To deny this reality is to be antichrist. Jesus is rooting our hope. He is rooting the confidence of our salvation in the historical fact that Jesus came, that Jesus took on human flesh, that Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus is fully God. Jesus became fully man. And third truth, Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sinless. Please look at verse five here in 1 John chapter one. It says, this is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is God and God is light. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. John says in his gospel, in him Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus in John 8 verse 12 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. This theme of light and darkness is one that John weaves into his writing often and it's picked up from the Old Testament. This whole idea, this contrast between light and darkness, light is often used to describe holiness or moral purity. If we look at the context of where verse five is found here in 1 John chapter one, it's clear that God being light and him not having darkness in him at all is referring to Jesus's moral perfection, to his sinlessness. Jesus is light. And to walk in darkness is to not practice 
the truth. It is to have actions, thoughts, or speech that are not consistent with the truth. Jesus is God and God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If you look at the end of chapter two, verse one, it calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, Jesus came into the world, he dwelt amongst sinners and yet remained sinless. Jesus' life was a life of moral perfection. He did all things in accordance with the word in accordance with the ways, and in accordance with the will of God. Because Jesus is God. Jesus was sinless, fourth and final essential truth. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for sinners. Please look at verse seven, chapter one. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse seven says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Sinners are unclean. Sinners are impure. Sinners are morally stained. Sinners are profane. Sinners are in darkness. We are sinners. This means that we are unclean. We are impure. We are morally stained. We are profane. We are in darkness. And if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. You see, this is mankind's greatest problem, that God is holy and he demands holiness, moral perfection from all those who would dwell in his presence. His holiness demands purity. His holiness demands holiness. And as we've just acknowledged, we are none of those things as sinners. We have a sin problem and we are completely unable to do anything about it. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus had to die and shed his blood so that sinners might be cleansed from all their sins, so that sinners who were impure might be made pure, so that sinners who were profane might become holy and made righteous by Jesus' blood. 1 John 2.2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Don't you just love that word? Uh, propitiation. Propitiation means this, atoning sacrifice. That really clears it up, right? Uh, atoning sacrifice means that Jesus substituted himself in the place of sinners. Jesus substituted his sinlessness in the place of sinners. When he stood in the place of sinners, he bore the full wrath of God that was bent in the sinner's direction. 
that all of God's holy hatred towards sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. And when this happened on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus removed the guilt from the sinner and he replaced their guilt with his innocence. Jesus traded his sinlessness for mankind's sinfulness. Sinless Jesus endured the full wrath of God against sin so that sinners might enjoy the full favor of God. Sinless Jesus endured the full wrath of God against sin so that sinners might enjoy the full favor of God. This is propitiation. If you're not a words person, let me illustrate it. Uh, And I'm using words because I am a words person to illustrate it, so bear with me. Uh, It's as if there were two accounts. Jesus has an account and the sinner has an account. In Jesus' account, Jesus is completely righteous. In the sinner's account, the sinner is completely unrighteous. Jesus was completely obedient. The sinner is completely disobedient. Jesus enjoyed the full favor of the Father, and the sinner had only hopes of enduring the condemnation, wrath, and separation from God. But in becoming the propitiation for our sin, the two accounts were swapped. Jesus gave all of his righteousness, obedience, and favor to the sinner, thus making them a child of God, and he took on all of our unrighteousness, disobedience, and wrath. God poured out all of his holy hatred of sin, his wrath, unto Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he, being God, made him, being Jesus, to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that we might be considered the righteousness of God. That the full wrath of God stored up for sinners for all the sins of mankind was poured out upon Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. He was forsaken by the Father and the wrath of God was satisfied. Sinners then who embrace this truth, who embrace this reality by turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone are no longer children of wrath. We are now children of God Almighty. Jesus was not crucified because he was misunderstood. Jesus was not crucified because he was a political threat to the Romans. Jesus was not crucified because he was a religious threat to the Jews. Jesus Christ was crucified because God so loved the world. And he was ultimately crucified so that the Father might receive glory in bringing sinners to glory. Jesus Christ was crucified on behalf of sinners for the glory of God. The truth that he was fully God makes his sacrifice perfect and infinite. The truth that he was fully man makes his sacrifice applicable to mankind. And because Jesus was sinless, it made it possible for him to rise in victory over death and sin. You see, Jesus did not remain the embodiment of sin. He did not remain the embodiment of all of our unrighteousness and disobedience. Because he was sinless, he was vindicated and rose victorious over sin and death. And now forever and always, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now forever and always, enjoying the full favor of the Father. 
Hebrews 2, 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to become like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was fully God. He became fully man. He lived a sinless life and he died in the place of sinners. I have a quote here for us this morning, and it's a bit of a longer quote, but I think it's really, really helpful in summing up what we've been getting at here for the last 23 minutes and 39 seconds. Uh, So uh, please hear this. It's going to be on the screen. Follow along and really reflect on this truth. This is from John Piper. He said this, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, thus exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says that we are all sick with sin and we must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life Because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of man and woman. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It's authoritarian, imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? God. Jesus was fully God, became fully man, lived a sinless life, and died in the place of of sinners. And John wants to make sure as we begin this letter that we understand these four essential truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ because when we understand them, it leads to three glorious implications. Implication number one, I can confess my sins. I can confess my sins. Look at verses eight and nine, please. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, 
if we confess our sins. Now this may come as a huge shock to you, but Christians still sin. Anyone claiming to be a Christian who also claims that since they came to Christ, they stopped sinning, is deceiving themselves. We do not become instantly perfect when we come to Christ. We will never be perfect on this side of glory. Yes, in order to come to Christ and to embrace his finished work on the cross by faith, I must acknowledge my sinfulness. But this is not a one-time act of confession, but rather this is the first moment of confession that begins a lifelong pattern of confessing my sins to the Lord. You see, you have two options with your sin. You can either cover or conceal your sin, thus deceiving yourself and attempting to deceive God and attempting to deceive others, or you can adopt a posture of continually agreeing with God about your sinfulness in its very nature and in its specific acts. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13 is one of the most convicting and at the same time one of the most comforting verses I have found in Scripture. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So can I ask, brother or sister in Christ, are you concealing sin in your life? Are you covering over sin in your life and not wanting anyone else to know or see? I tell you, if that's you this morning, you are exactly where the enemy of your soul wants you to be. He wants you to be isolated, to be alone, to be scrapping your way through, trying to figure it out all by yourself in the dark corner of your soul. He wants you wallowing in your sin by yourself. You may even genuinely want to be free from, from it, but if you are unwilling to confess it to the Lord and unwilling to bring it before your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will continue to struggle. Can I ask you this morning who are not in Christ? Are you deceiving yourself? Saying that you do not have sin? You don't truly believe that you have this sin problem that scripture proclaims you do in fact have? You say to yourself, I have no need of being saved. I'm not in trouble. You too might be drowning in your sin and up until this very moment, you may have only been filled with shame or your heart may have grown hard. But perhaps now your heart is being softened to be able to confess it to the Lord. Whether it's you in Christ who have been concealing sin or you who are not in Christ who have been concealing sin, I have really good news for you this morning. You don't have to conceal your sin anymore. You don't have to deceive yourself and others anymore. You don't have to isolate yourself and try to work things out apart from the work of God in your life and apart from your brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus is fully God, became fully man, lived a sinless life, and died in the place of sinners, you can confess your sins. You see, part of the Christian life is an honest and ongoing acknowledgement of sin. And it's a confession of this sin to the Lord. And not just confessing your sins like it's some kind of therapeutic sharing with the big man upstairs. 
not just like laying back on a couch and getting it all off your chest so that you can feel better about it, but confessing your sins to God Almighty, who alone has the power to do anything about your sin. You see, not only can you confess your sins, but I can also be forgiven of my sins. I can be forgiven of my sins. The rest of verse nine concludes like this. It says, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. He has made promises all throughout scripture that he would cancel the record of our debt that our sins create against him. He has made promises all throughout scripture that he would not treat us according to our sins if and when we repent of our sins. He has promised to forgive us so that there would not be anything that stands in the way of me enjoying relationship and fellowship with him. He has promised to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west and he will be faithful to all these promises. Not only is he faithful, but it also says he is just to forgive us of our sins. How can God forgive sinners and yet remain just? It's because Jesus is fully God and he became fully man and he lived a sinless life and he died in the place of sinners. You see, God has not swept any sin under the rug and said, oh, we're not really gonna deal with that. No, every single sin will be dealt with, either in the bloody death of Jesus Christ on the cross or else in eternal judgment. It will either be dealt with in the propitiation of Jesus or in eternal separation from God. So God Almighty does not suspend his justice while he pours out grace. He can both pour out justice and grace because of what he has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God in his infinite wisdom and in this beautiful plan established before the foundation of the earth made it possible for God to remain just and yet justify the unjustifiable because of Jesus Christ. So if we confess our sins, God will faithfully and justly forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we said earlier, sinners are unclean impure, morally stained, profane, living in darkness. But Jesus, he comes and he deals with this greatest problem that we could do nothing about. He enables us to be holy. He enables us to be cleansed. He enables us to be pure. And so in Christ, my sins can be forgiven, my uncleanness can be washed away, and the third glorious implication of this is that I can have relationship with God. Me, a sinner, can have relationship with holy God because of these four essential truths. My relationship with God, hear this this morning, my relationship with God is not founded on what I do. My relationship with God is ultimately founded on what Jesus did. Christianity is first and foremost about what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is not about what we do. Look at verse 2-1. It tells us that we have an advocate with the Father. How beautiful is this picture to know that we have another. 
the holy son of God who pleads our case before the father. The sinless son of God comes alongside me and he stands before the father and when my heart is exposed before him, he pleads my case. There he interposes his precious blood and he puts forth his blood and says, remember father, this has been dealt with. Remember father, we've dealt with this. It's over, all debts are canceled. The record is gone that stood against him. We have an advocate with the Father, this Jesus, who became our great and merciful high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 says this on the screens. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Jesus speaks to the Father on my behalf. Child of God, Jesus speaks to the Father on your behalf. When he rose from the dead, he ascended and he is now seated at the right hand of God Almighty and he is speaking to the Father about you. He is our great high priest. So look at chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What has John seen and heard? He has seen Jesus, fully God, become fully man. He has seen Jesus live a sinless life. He has seen Jesus die in the place of sinners. And he wants to proclaim this message to you and to me so that we too might be able to confess our sins, so that we too might be able to be forgiven of our sins, and so that we too may have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with all the children of God. Relationship with God is possible. Guilty sinners can be forgiven all when they embrace by faith the person and work of Jesus Christ. The claim to eternal life is founded on the person and finished work of Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, period. No works, not earning, so no boasting, only grace, only glory to God. And so it's no wonder that he has verse four. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He writes these things, these truths, these three glorious implications that flow from these four essential truths so that our joy might be complete. And so this morning, we're going to rejoice by taking communion. We're gonna rejoice in these truths and these glorious implications by remembering what Jesus Christ has done Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the gospel that you have heard this morning. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Sinners who are separated from God because of their moral impurity can be forgiven their sin, can be cleansed from all unrighteousness because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, with infinite perfection, 
became a man and died in the place of sinners. The good news then is that you can agree with God about your sin. The good news is that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you can have relationship with God right now and for all eternity through the person and finished work of Jesus. So, if you have turned from your sins and you've trusted in Jesus, if this morning you are in Christ, then this moment, communion, is for you. In communion, we remember that Jesus took on human flesh so that his body could be broken for us and so that his blood could be poured out for us. In communion, we draw near to the Lord with confidence, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And in communion, we rejoice that the work is finished. We rejoice that Jesus, the sin bearer, became the sin conqueror. We rejoice that Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will fully and finally deal with all sin, and he will fully and finally bring all his children to be with him forever.